welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. David Lang, who is the current president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Dr. Lang is the chairman of the Department of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Lang has a long and distinguished career as an educator, researcher, and leader through multiple professional organizations, some of which we will discuss in our conversation. Today, we're going to focus and learn more about Dr. Lang's presidential initiatives. Dr. Lang, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much. Uh, it's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Well, as we record this episode, uh, you're a little more than halfway through your term as the president of the Academy. How's it going so far? Uh, well, actually, it's uh, it's about two thirds of the way through, but who's counting? But it's it's uh, still so far so good. I'm I'm grateful. I'm humbled and grateful for the opportunity to serve in this role, and uh, things are going very well. Well, excellent. And I can only imagine how much uh, time this takes and, and the demands that you have on your time. Uh, but I'd be, I'd be curious to know if you can discuss some of the highlights that you've experienced so far as you approach you know, two-thirds of the way through your term. Highlights. So, uh, so the term highlight actually comes from um, uh, art in the 17th century. Um, the, the term highlight relates to um, the bright spots of a painting. So in terms of the bright spots that I've experienced so far, uh, several come to mind. The first is the uh, support staff uh, from EDI for the Academy who are uh, outstanding in terms of uh, the roles they play in um, allowing us to uh, achieve our goals. Um, So that's the first highlight that comes to mind. And then... um, you know the the perspective I have, the opportunities I have to interact with uh, individuals and um, uh, allergists who are engaged in the academy. It's it's uh, very reassuring to see uh, uh, early and mid career allergists uh, becoming engaged, and there are um, a number of individuals who come to mind as I say that, and the uh, you know from um, my perspective and the the perspective of my contemporaries, uh, the early and mid-career allergists are the lifeblood of our specialty. So it's it's very gratifying to see those individuals becoming engaged in um, being active members of committees and moving into leadership roles in committees and task forces and other areas of the academy. And um, also from uh, the perspective of... um, the board of the academy. Uh, we currently enjoy an effective and high-functioning board. So um, you know, these are the highlights that come to mind, and and 
again, I'm grateful to be uh, serving as uh, president of the Academy. Well, that's great. And, and as you're speaking about this, it just dawned upon me that, you know, we have a, a wide variety of listeners to our podcast, which we're very thankful for. But many of them may not realize, you know, what it takes to become president. Uh, you know, do you get to stop seeing patients and give up your daytime job for an entire year while you're president? Or are you still doing all the you know other things that you were involved <laughs> with before? <laughs> right. So, yeah, actually, I saw a patient uh, earlier today prior to, I mean, you and I are talking yeah. at uh, um, a little after 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. And I had, uh, you know, I added a patient in today, even though I'm not scheduled to see patients. So, uh, yeah, I have ongoing administrative uh, roles here at, uh, in my day job at the Cleveland Clinic. And um, I did, um, uh, you know, just in terms of preparing for um, uh, the um, tasks that would come my way as president and the, um, including uh, not only um, uh, day-to-day decisions that, are, that need to be made, but also um, uh, greater responsibilities in terms of travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did... Um, kind of make some room on my plate. I had served as a fellowship training program director here uh, for a number of years, as you're well aware, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. I should add that uh, Dr. Stukas is a well-trained uh, allergist. I can uh, testify to that. Uh, he trained yeah. in our program, and we're very proud of him, I should add, in terms of what he's accomplished uh, in his career at uh, in Columbus, uh, just down the road from us. Um, but um yeah just being realistic i i uh, transitioned uh, uh the fellowship training program and uh, served in a, as co-director of our asthma center and uh, someone else has moved into that role now so i had to make room on my plate and um but uh but yeah i continue to see patients here and continue to to um work with our fellows I gave a talk yesterday at one of our seminars so uh uh so it's um um, so I continue to be active here to answer your question. Yeah, that's great. And do you have a, a beach vacation planned after you um, hand the gavel over at the annual meeting? Um, I'm considering it, yeah. <laughs> I, I would think it would be very well deserved by that time. <laughs> you mentioned some of the highlights that you've experienced thus far, but can you comment on some of the unanticipated challenges and, you know, shall we say, lessons learned to this point? Yeah, so one of the uh, unanticipated challenges is the... Um, amount of time that is dedicated, that uh, Academy leadership dedicates to what I'll call advocacy. And uh, this includes uh, visits to Capitol Hill, uh, meeting with legislators, taking our agenda concerning um, advocating for food allergy, advocating for penicillin allergy, uh, directly to uh, members of Congress. In fact, uh, recently in October, we met at the end of October, um, we met with a number of congressional leaders, um, held a congressional briefing on November 1st in collaboration with the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, the CDC, uh, to present on uh, penicillin allergy and antibiotic stewardship. We also had an op-ed published in The Hill, which is one of the uh, important media outlets read by uh, members of Congress. So uh, we have achieved a number of successes in uh, these arenas, advocating, again, for uh, food allergy, penicillin allergy. And, um, you know, in terms of lessons learned, you know, Atul Gwande, 
who writes in the New Yorker uh, several years ago had a column. Uh, as as um, a number of listeners are aware, he's a surgeon in uh, Boston. He um, wrote an article about cowboys and pit crews. Uh, when I went to medical school, uh, basically uh, we were trained to uh, to be cowboys. We were trained to be independent. Uh, I was trained. It was an emphasis in my um, medical training to, for instance, uh, be skeptical about diagnoses made by other physicians. And really, um, healthcare has transitioned to the extent that um, it's now a team approach. And rather than being cowboys, uh, we need to function as members of pit crews. Uh, we need to, as allergy immunology specialists, bring value to the table and create positive change in situations based on our our training and our expertise. So in terms of uh, lessons learned, I think that this is uh, one of the themes that I have strived to uh, carry forward in in my presidency in terms of of viewing the allergy immunology specialty uh, as a a, a part of an effort to uh, achieve positive change. Well, I I appreciate you sharing that, and I I know our listeners always appreciate the opportunity to hear more from our our leaders and uh, your insight into, you know, how you spend your time as president is is invaluable, so thank you. Now, moving on, I'd like to talk more about your presidential initiatives, Uh, and, you know, you have a very strong background in evidence-based medicine, quality, and education. Uh, Can you comment on how that background has helped shape your initiatives and also describe what those are? In terms of how I've approached these initiatives, I you know grew up in Detroit and um, grew up as a hockey fan. My dad used to take me to hockey games and see Gordie Howe play for the Detroit Red Wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, Wayne Gretzky, who uh, began playing at a time when Gordie Howe was um, uh, was still skating on the ice for the Red Wings, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, was asked once to describe the secret of of his success, and he said, um, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it's been. So I have strived to identify um, initiatives that are consistent with um, Wayne Gretzky's adage, and these are in the arenas of education, quality, and telemedicine. So I can um, elaborate a bit on on these, um, if you wish, Dave. Uh, That would be great. Yeah, can you you tell us what those are and and describe them? Yeah, so telemedicine, let's take that first. So telemedicine is um, a huge initiative here for us at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, and I know it is at other other medical centers as well. Um, We have um, targets for the proportion of our visits um, that are um, what we call virtual visits. Uh, So I have uh, targets per month and per quarter uh, for uh, virtual visits, and um, our CEO has um, declared that by 2024, five years from now, 50% of our visits will be virtual. Hmm. This is consistent with what the public wants. And uh, there are a number of factors that are drivers for this. It is what is um, what is known as a disruptive innovation 
in the um, healthcare field. Uh, let me just elaborate on that because I think it's important that listeners understand that phrase, which was uh, introduced by Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School. So the best example, moving out of healthcare uh, completely, the best example of this uh, um, that I can describe is, uh, and we're all familiar with this, is uh, computers. So I'm here in my office, as you remember, Dave, I have a, uh, one of the original Macintosh toasters that uh, I purchased, <laughs> and uh, it's a Macintosh SE30. I'm looking right at it while I talk with you. Uh, and I purchased that in, um, boy, I want to say 1988. And I should actually plug it in someday to see whether it even comes on. <laughs> but it's basically here as a conversation piece in my office. 30, 35 years ago, we had mainframe computers, and then desktop computers were introduced. You couldn't do with a desktop computer what you could do with a mainframe computer. I mean, that was much more powerful. But the desktop computer had more uh, what I'll call suitable functionality to the end user. Then, laptop computers were introduced. Well, you know, same thing. You, walk, you know, laptop computer was portable. But you couldn't do with your laptop computer what you could do with your desktop computer because the desktop was, was more powerful. Uh, ultimately, we uh, have come to uh, an era in which we have handheld devices. You can't do with your handheld device what you can do with your laptop, but the handheld has more suitable functionality. And ultimately, we've got, you know, I've got my, my wristwatch here that has uh, suitable functionality apart from my handheld. So each step you take, you lose something in terms of um, in terms of performance, but you gain in terms of suitable functionality. And again, this is consumer driven. It's what people want. People want suitable functionality, and that's that's the context in which I would encourage uh, listeners to view telemedicine. You can't clearly you can't accomplish. In a virtual visit, what you can face-to-face, -face, but it's what people want. And particularly, it's what people want um, in the millennial generation. So this is going to continue. This is going to continue to develop. And it's not, just, it's not just telemedicine. There are other technologic innovations, which, you know, listeners are well aware of. But one that I'll cite is the use of um, a scribe service. In, in um, individuals who are working with uh, electronic medical records, frequently this slows us down. This is an issue that contributes to uh, physician burnout. You work with a scribe, it can help you. And we have a pilot program here at the Cleveland Clinic where we are working with um, uh, remote scribes. So there's a, uh, an individual who r remotes in and uh, listens to the encounter and populates the note in the electronic medical record while we're interacting with the patient. So there's a lot that's going on now in terms of technology. So basically, the, the goal here is to um, allow allergy immunology physicians to harness the technologic innovations that are being introduced, not only telemedicine, but uh, but other innovations as well. And in recognition of this, when I became president, 
I reached out to Todd Marr and the college. They had already established a, a group of individuals to focus on telemedicine and technology, and we decided that uh, we would make this a joint task force on uh, telemedicine and technology, and that's what has happened. So the joint task force has been engaged in authoring a number of publications, and we're working on uh, collaborations with vendors, and we have some other ideas to uh, not only have sessions at both the academy and college annual meetings, but also have an area in the exhibit hall where uh, technology uh, will be on display. Hmm. Well, as with any form of technology, you know, we're going to have our, our early adopters and we're going to have those that are just completely unfamiliar or resistant to mm -hmm. this change. Can you describe, what does this actually look like? Is this, you know, you're you're on your smartphone and having a conversation with somebody living thousands of miles away or halfway across the world or, or you know, what what does this actually look like for, say, an allergist in practice? In terms of telemedicine, yeah, so I'm I'm uh, I'm able to utilize my uh, desktop computer um, to um, have a face-to-face -face encounter with the patient, so they can see me on their laptop, their handheld device. I see them on on the desktop computer in my office. Oh, I was going to say, is, it, is there a, a, another physician or medical professional on the other end that can help better answer questions or zoom in on certain areas of the physical exam or, you know, just logistically right. how so, does that work? So there are, um, there are uh, some centers where um, the patient goes to um, a site, for instance. So a lot of the patients we see here, uh, we have already seen previously, so we're not doing initial encounters or new patient visits, if you will, via telemedicine. But usually, I mean, about at our um, at the site from which I'm um, speaking to you, Dave, um, at the Cleveland Clinic main campus, um, we about a third of the patients who come to see us come to see us from outside the Cleveland, Ohio metropolitan area, either other areas of Ohio, neighboring states, other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So when I see a patient with, uh, say, a refractory urticaria, um, you know, and they live, you know, they live in, um, I don't know, Kentucky, or, you know, they live east in, in Pennsylvania or New York, uh, rather than uh, driving here for hours and then driving back after an encounter with me, which is basically an all-day adventure for them. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than the long drive, uh, paying for gas, hassling with parking here they can um, accomplish the visit virtually. So they have a slot on my schedule on a day that I see patients, and um, I get a prompt on my cell phone indicating that there's a patient in my waiting room, so I know that they're there. And then uh, we carry out the visit. Um, it's usually briefer than a face-to-face -face encounter. Mm -hmm. um, but we accomplish, again, it's, it's a disruptive technology. It gets back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, you know, at this point, the um, at least here, you know, this varies uh, state to state. But here, um, at this time, most payers aren't covering the, the cost of these visits. So patients pay out of pocket. Mm -hmm. But uh, which I... Which I uh, Originally, when we began doing this, thought would be a major barrier. It is not. I've never had a patient say, when I've explained uh, the options of um, 
follow-up. You know, when I say, listen, you've come a long distance, I appreciate the opportunity to participate in your healthcare management, and at this point, you can go back to your referring physician, and, you know, I'll send a summary of findings and recommendations. If you lived around the corner from here, I'd say come back and see me in four to six weeks, but you don't live around the corner. Mm -hmm. Another option is that you can see me via virtual visit, and then I go through the, um, you know, my explanation, and uh, and I say, but, you know, you'll need to pay out of pocket, and most people say, listen, you know, compared with coming there for a whole day, you know, with all the costs, the time, da-da-da-da-da, I'm happy to pay out of pocket. Hmm. So you mentioned the, the reimbursement as a, as a barrier. What are some other barriers that either exist now or that you envision for the future in regards to, that may make it, you know, widespread adoption of telemedicine more challenging? Well, I mean, survey data show that uh, the majority of the public, I want to say somewhere around 65-70% view, uh, at least, view uh, the possibility of seeing a healthcare provider uh, via telemedicine favorably. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there may be uh, a perception of a barrier for individuals in our specialty who are in community practice and don't currently have an electronic medical record, but it's my mm -hmm. understanding that uh, the companies that offer this technology can get around that so that you don't need an electronic medical record per se uh, to do this, although here uh, this is integrated with our electronic medical record, which is EPIC. Mm. Does it record the visits so you can access them later? No, it, no, I don't. I don't believe the visits are being no. recorded per se. But we do have, um, uh, you know, I, there is documentation okay. um, that takes place after the visit, uh, similar to a face-to-face -face encounter. Although obviously, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not doing a physical exam. Sure, sure. And um, to go back, you mentioned urticaria as an example. Uh, I yeah. can imagine you're not seeing urticaria all day via telemedicine. So, w what are some other conditions that you know are really favorably adopted to telemedicine specifically for allergists? Well, I can, I mean, I can tell you my personal experience. I mean, this is not going to be a complete list, but, you know, uh, um, this is not like a review article list yeah. table, but I can tell you just based on my experience, uh, and I, I don't see kids, I see adults, um, I have um, um, the patients who have um, taken advantage of this opportunity include not only patients who come from a distance with chronic urticaria, but also uh, patients with uh, refractory asthma, uh, mm. including those who have gone on biologic agents and you know require a follow-up, uh, patients with uh, immune deficiency. Mm. Um, and I guess those are the and, – and patients who um, – you know, there are patients whom I see with, um, as you know, Dave, with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease, and they 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 also come from a distance, and um, I, you know, after they're desensitized, and in terms of follow-up, um, uh, they also accomplish that via via telemedicine. That's fascinating. Now, uh, we, we sort of got sidetracked a bit because this is a great conversation surrounding telemedicine, but can you also introduce the other two presidential initiatives that you have put in place this year? Yeah, so um, we've launched a, an Academy Educator Development Award, and um, this is in recognition of of the fact that, that – um, 
over the years, having served as the fellowship uh, training program director here and uh, being directly involved with um, interviewing candidates for fellowship, when I um, when I ask my standard set of questions, uh, one of them is, you know, fast forward 15 years after you complete your training, what do you see yourself doing? There are a substantial proportion of uh, individuals coming into our specialty who desire a successful career as a clinician educator. So um, the goal of this award is to nurture future allergy, immunology, medical educators so um, they can be successful in an academic arena and um, get the opportunity to formally train in medical education and um, more successfully uh, in this role um, as a medical educator, foster education of future allergy immunology physicians, contribute to curriculum development um, at academy meetings. And um, this is the first year, and we've had um, quite a few high-quality applications. And at this point, we have um, several individuals who have submitted formal applications, and we're going to move forward with uh, the pro with identifying the awardee who will be announced at the 2020 annual meeting in Philadelphia. Mm, and I would right. hope that uh, this award would would continue and hopefully will expand in the future. Well, that's great. So it'll be it'll be one awardee this year uh announced at the meeting. Correct? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we we can't wait to find out who that is. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then uh, your third initiative. Yeah. So there is a third initiative, and <laughs> the third initiative uh, revolves around quality. Mm. So as um, as you know, Dave, and as the listeners are aware, we're currently in a transition from volume a volume based healthcare system to one based on value, and uh, we're seeing an increasing emphasis on accountability, uh, patient satisfaction, quality and cost transparency, and implementation of quality measures. And uh, it's anticipated that payments for healthcare in the future will be linked with performance on quality measures. So at the uh, annual meeting in uh, March 2020 in Philadelphia, our keynote speaker, Shantanu Agarwal, CEO of the National Quality Forum, will address the transition to value-based healthcare. Also, we have a registry that provides uh, QCDR quality clinical data registry reporting options for MIPS, that is Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, that includes specialty-specific quality measures for allergy immunology, and we're uh, we're engaged in a number of uh, strategies currently to ignite our registry um, so that uh, more members of the academy are uh, reporting data, and I believe this is um, this will be a successful long-term strategy that will allow our specialty to document uh, more convincingly that we bring value to the table. Mm. And for listeners, um, we will be able to put links to the registry uh, through the website and the show notes as well, so you can access that through the website when you when you listen to the podcast. Now, you have devoted such a significant portion of your personal career towards quality. 
Can you offer us some insight as to, you know, where did this come from? Was this, you know, growing up in Detroit, you, you experienced some things that really led to this? Or, you know, give us some, some insight into why this is so important to you. So with the Cleveland Clinic, um, our former CEO, who is a, actually our current CEO, is also a cardiovascular surgeon. Uh, but our former CEO was a cardiovascular surgeon, and his name was Toby Crosgrove. Actually, the CEO before him was also a cardiovascular surgeon. His name was Floyd Loop. But uh, Toby Cosgrove, when he came into the uh, role of CEO uh, here, initiated... Um, an opportunity for the staff to plan a visit anywhere in the world to gain a skill, an additional skill, and and then bring that back to the Cleveland Clinic. Hmm. So um, many took advantage of this. I think it was designed uh, primarily, uh, I mean, the, the clearest example of this would be a surgeon, for instance, who wants to... Um, gain um, uh, expertise with a new way to, um, I don't know, do a cholecystectomy. So uh, then bring that back. Um, so I used this opportunity for uh, a trip to um, another center to gain a skill to take a week-long workshop in evidence-based medicine at McMaster University. And that was something that... Uh, significantly influenced my career. Mm. And um, in addition to that, I was invited to serve as the delegate representing the academy to the National Quality Forum. So I have attended National Quality Forum meetings for more than a decade. The National Quality Forum, parenthetically, is the entity that critically appraises and endorses quality measures. Uh, so those two, um, and I should add, when I came back from McMaster University, I uh, did an educational fellowship here, and my project during that year, um, which to which 20% of my time was dedicated, was teaching evidence-based medicine to Cleveland Clinic staff. Uh, ultimately, I um, taught evidence-based medicine at the medical school here. So, um, so now it's kind of been a long answer, but basically, um, that's how I became involved in um, evidence-based medicine, using those skills in uh, my role in the Practice Parameters Task Force, on which I served for a number of years, uh, and um, and that's how I became engaged in the quality arena, and um, it's that perspective that. Um, leads me to include quality as, as one of the initiatives um, during my presidency and um, emphasize the importance of the registry on a long-term basis as we transition to value-based healthcare to emphasize that it's important for us to demonstrate that we bring value to the table. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on how our colleagues and, and allergists and even in the academy can generate more interest uh, in, you know, improving our approach towards quality? Any other initiatives? I, I think the registry is a, a fantastic resource, but for those who either haven't learned a whole lot about quality or just don't have much experience in it, any thoughts on ways that they can Well, I think that? I think this is this is um this is happening, but mm -hmm. it's happening more gradually. 
than we would have predicted a few years ago in terms of the transition to value-based healthcare. So I think it it, it is happening. I think that um, we're trying to move forward with um, getting uh, our quality measures. Uh, the two leading measures are one uh, pertaining to asthma, one pertaining to penicillin allergy, endorsed. Um, and um, you'll be hearing more about this, I think, in the next few months. Okay, excellent. One year is you know, hardly enough time to launch any initiatives, let alone fully develop them and implement projects. So what happens after your term is complete in March 2020? So after my term is complete, I move into the role of being past president. So it's not like the party's over completely here for me. <laughs> so I, I continue to serve on the board. And, uh, you know, these presidential initiatives, you know, you can, you can view them as um, threads running through time in the sense mm -hmm. that I've, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders, if you will, of individuals who have previously served as presidents of the academy and I'm picking up on uh, some of the ingredients of their initiatives and moving them along. And uh, I would hope that uh, what I've described in terms of uh, telemedicine technology, uh, education, and quality will also move forward uh, into the future. You're right. It's, it's tough to, uh, you know, it's tough to move the ball all the way down the field in a year. Mm -hmm. uh, so these, these initiatives continue through time. Yeah, I've had the pleasure, as you mentioned, of knowing you uh, since my days as a as a fellow in the training program at Cleveland Clinic. But you know, one thing I notice is I really think you have a wonderful knack of applying a personal touch in much of your correspondence, which I I hope and I believe helps all of our academy members get to know you on a more, more personal level. So along those lines, uh, would you be willing to discuss any of your passions outside of medicine and the things we talked about already? Yeah, I mean, I um. Sure, I I, um, I read a lot. I read a lot about uh, about history, about um, um, books in the arena of what I'll call behavioral economics. Mm. Um, I have a close family, and I like to travel, and um, I have a, have a home gym, and I work out a few times a week. <laughs> Uh, it's a pretty normal stuff, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And I also know that you have a um, a love of music that, that goes back for years. And I'd like to ask you what may be the toughest question of our, our interview before we say goodbye. So if you had to pick one musician or group to see them perform live, and they can be alive or dead, who would you choose and why? So the best concert I ever saw was... Um growing up in Detroit at Cobo Hall, 1973. I saw The Who on their Quadrophenia tour, and the mm. warm-up was Leonard Skinner. But that's not oh. my answer. That's not <laughs> my answer. My answer is that the first concert I ever saw, and I was nine years old, was The Beatles. Oh. I saw The Beatles. Uh, it, to be honest with you, that was in the Olympia, which is where the Red Wings used to play. It was in the Olympia, and there were so many girls screaming so loudly <laughs> that you could hardly hear the music, I'll be honest. But if I had one to answer your question, um, one group to see perform live who could be alive or dead, it would be r resurrecting the Beatles. Mm. 
Oh, boy. Have you seen the movie um, Yesterday, by any chance? Yesterday. Don't think I've seen the movie Yesterday. I, so, I need to get out. I need to get out more. I'll say that. Um, yeah, I have, I have seen you know Hard Day's Night and Help. Those are the movies that that come to mind regarding the Beatles. But go ahead. I'm listening. Tell me. Well, no, I, I think you would love it. Imagine a world where all of a sudden every human, uh, except for one, forgot that the Beatles ever existed, and that that one person who happens to be a musician then resurrects their songs uh, for the rest of the world to hear. Uh, it's a, it's a very deep movie on many levels, but uh, you know perhaps on your next plane ride. Um, it's, it's available to rent now and watch on demand, but um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts if you ever get get the time to watch that. Wow. Well, thanks for that recommendation. That sounds really interesting. That's a yeah. that's a novel. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I've taken enough of your time, and I, I thank you again for spending time with us today to discuss your important presidential initiatives and, and for all of us to get to know you on a more personal level. Uh, before we depart, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well... You know, in interviewing um, fellowship candidates um, over the years, I've I've been asked by some candidates, um, I mean, it was at a time when I was the program director, what are you looking for in a candidate? And and my answer has always been that we're looking for individuals who have the ingredients to give back to the field Hmm. in their careers. And with the understanding that there are a number of ways that you can do this, uh, that you can contribute to the field as a as a researcher, as an educator, doing community service, as a clinician. And uh, one of the ways to give back is uh, to become active in the academy. And um, I would encourage individuals to take advantage of opportunities if you're if you're not yet engaged. Uh, one of the ways to uh, to initiate this would be to uh, think about an area that you're interested in and that. Uh, you know, join a committee, join a task force, get involved. So um, I want to thank you, Dave, for your contributions to the Academy, um, which have been substantial. And uh, congrats on all your success, including your success with these podcasts. Well, well, thank you very much. And thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.